Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 90. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors and remember that by shopping from our sponsors you are indirectly helping the show stay sustainable and uh, keep coming out at the current frequency of two episodes per week. So uh, that really helps when you do that and thank you to all the listeners who uh, are shopping from our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And uh, by this point, we are in early June, and actually some races are starting to uh, come up again. In particular, I've heard in the Nordics, and I know from some people that I coach there, that races are starting to pop up, and I think that many other countries will soon follow. So if you are in race training mode again, because you have a vague idea that maybe there will be racing in the next couple of months, then uh, do pay attention to practicing specific race hydration and nutrition. And the precision hydration can help you with the hydration part, in particular when it comes to electrolytes. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your race and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka, the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, including a prescription glasses and sunglasses. I recently got a big delivery of uh, gear from Roka with some of the newest Roka products that I've been talking about. So I have been using the uh, Maverick MX, the Max Buoyancy wetsuit. I've been using the Matador sunglasses and uh, the Rory prescription glasses. And uh, I am undoubtedly a bit biased because uh, Roka is a long-term sponsor of the podcast. But uh, I should uh, say that I have also been a paying user of Roka products for a very long time. And from the very first Roka product that I got or uh, purchased, the quality has always been absolutely impeccable, almost shockingly good in some cases that you can't quite believe how good it feels to, for example, put on the the Maverick MX for the first time and take it for a swim. So this whole new batch of products that I've tried recently lives up to that very, very easily. They're absolutely amazing, all of them. And uh, that's the reason that Roka is the sponsor of the podcast. It's just such a good fit because we have a similar uh, philosophy and uh, attitude in just putting out the best possible content in my case, products in Roka's case that uh, that they can and that I can. So uh, highly, highly recommend checking out Roka's products. You can do that on roka.com and you can get 20% off your order on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's questions. First, we have a question from David in the UK who writes, Hi, Michael. Uh, I love the podcasts and all the guidance and advice. One thing I do to keep turbo trainer workouts interesting is to vary my cadence whilst continuing to aim for the same continuous power output. For example, during continuous sweet spot workouts. I will do, for example, 15 minutes at 100 plus RPM and then gradually decrease the cadence and use incrementally harder gears so that the effort starts to use different muscle fibers and improves muscular endurance. I have found that my heart rate creeps up when doing 100 plus RPM, but then gets a good 5 to 10 beats lower as, as I decrease my cadence, but keep the power the same. Do you know if this is normal physiology or if this might be 
indicating an imbalance in endurance or efficiency in my muscles. If the latter, should I therefore be targeting doing more higher cadence work for longer so that my heart rate for both types of efforts become uh, becomes roughly the same? Very grateful for your thoughts. Many thanks, David. All right, David, thank you so much for your question. And uh, yes, this is very normal physiology, what you're experiencing with higher heart rate during higher cadence uh, efforts at the same constant power output. In the literature on cycling cadence, you will often see a term called energetically optimal cadence or EOC for short. And this is the cadence at which energy turnover is minimized for a given power output. Energy turnover can be calculated simply in these research studies from the ventilatory measurements with a VO2 analyzer. So just by measuring uh, inspired oxygen and expired carbon dioxide that you will do in a standard incremental lab test with uh, with that uh, VO2 analyzer. So uh, it's uh, basically you can also you can also call the EOC the point where vo2 is minimized it's not exactly the way it's defined but more or less the the same so some things to note vo2 by the way being the oxygen uptake that uh, that you experience uh, some some things to note on the eoc is that gross efficiency in cycling so uh, how much or how little power you waste <clears throat> excuse me how little power you waste that also changes with uh, cadence in an inverse relationship to energy turnover or oxygen uptake so at the point where you at the cadence where you minimize energy turnover or oxygen uptake you maximize efficiency a very obvious statement perhaps but i want to mention that that there is that relationship or association between a low oxygen uptake for a given power output and a high gross efficiency relative to other cadences Uh, The EOC, uh, energetically optimal cadence, also depends on power output. So at lower power outputs, your individual EOC will be lower than at higher powers. Uh, In the literature, we see a range where the energetically optimal cadence occurs between anywhere from 50 RPM to 80 RPM, depending on power output. So at higher power outputs, it will be closer to that 80 RPM range. And at very low power outputs, it might be around that 50 RPM. Heart rate it generally correlates very well with oxygen uptake with VO2, which means that at a higher oxygen uptake, your heart rate will also be higher. And this is exactly the physiological phenomenon that you see when you do your 100 plus RPM segments of that sweet spot workout. Your VO2 is higher uh, than when you get down to, let's say, 80 RPM or 70 RPM, and therefore your heart rate is also higher. And the 5 to 10 beats per minute difference is consistent with what we see in the literature on this. And uh, actually, you could even be seeing a larger difference. As, so that depends a bit on your power output, but it's not big at all, I would say, or not not big in the sense that I'm at all surprised to see that that is the different difference that you're seeing. And I wouldn't have been surprised if you were, would have written 10 to 15, potentially even 10 to 20 beats per minute. So so it's completely normal there. And the reason as for why, well, the hypothesis at least, because I'm not aware that this has been specifically investigated in research, but there, there are good mechanistic hypotheses for, for why this happens. And the reason that at very low cadences, your VO2 and energy tur- turnover will increase. So when you go below that 
let's say 50 rpm or if your power output is higher maybe when you go lower than 60 or 70 rpm uh, is that you will be recruiting having a greater fast twitch muscle fiber recruitment remember that at low cadences your pedal strokes will have be of higher force which means that you will recruit more fast twitch muscle fibers when you are pedaling at a lower cadence so so when you experience that let's say you're pedaling at uh, close to your like you're pedaling at sweet spot maybe just to give you an example your eoc occurs at 65 or 70 let's say 70 rpm at that at that power output and then you go down to 60 rpm and uh, then you see a big increase in the recruitment of fast twitch fibers these fast twitch fibers are simply less efficient in their use of oxygen than uh, the slow twitch fibers and this is the reason or the hypothesis for why your vo2 increases when you go lower than your energetically optimal cadence for that given power output and on the other end of the spectrum at high cadences why does your vo2 increase when you increase your cadence beyond your eoc the hypothesis there is that uh, it's because of an increase in internal power internal power means power generated by the muscles to overcome energy changes of body movement so accelerations and decelerations mostly when we're talking about cycling this would be movements of the legs of course uh, but this energy this internal power doesn't go into the pedals it's wasted energy essentially but it still requires uh, metabolic energy to fuel that uh, that produced internal power meaning an increase in vo2 so so that internal power that gets higher when your leg turnover increases your cadence increases and obviously you have more energy changes uh, because of that that is the potential reason that you see that higher vo2 and consequently a higher heart rate to give you an idea of what magnitude this internal power effect may have uh, there is a study by hansen and colleagues that i'll link to it's from 2003 they modeled uh, this uh, phenomenon so it's not direct measurements but they used a few different models to calculate internal power and one of those models which was very close to another one and fairly close to a third one uh, reported that the internal power for three different cadences 61 88 and 115 rpm was 15 watts 41 watts and 91 watts respectively so when you compare cycling at and i can't remember the power that they were pedaling at so i should have looked that up but there will be the link will be in the episode description so you can go and have a look yourself compare wasting 15 watts at 61 rpm with wasting 91 watts at 115 rpm you can understand that that's a clear reason that uh, that heart rate might be significantly higher external power so power output the power you put into the pedals does have an impact on internal power as well so when your uh, the, the pedaling power is higher so at sweet spot compared to zone two for example that also means that internal power increases so so at your sweet spot workouts that you're using in the example you are working at a reasonable power output so these effects of internal power might be magnified when you're going to high cadences one more thing to note on eoc again energetically optimal cadence is that it is not the same as your self-selected cadence or your freely chosen cadence the freely chosen cadence has been associated in some studies with uh, the point of minimized neuromuscular fatigue uh, from 
what I've seen, I would not call this any conclusive evidence by any means, but it is an interesting hypothesis uh, because in trained cyclists that have a lot of very fatigue-resistant slow-twitch fibers, it uh, might then make sense why their freely chosen cadence is potentially higher, maybe even significantly higher than their EOC, their energetically optimal cadence. Because the additional energetic cost of pedaling at a higher cadence, let's say pedaling at 80 RPM instead of 60 RPM, might be a worthwhile trade-off when considering that given the type of muscles you're recruiting, uh, more fatigue-resistant slow-twitch fibers instead of uh, less fatigue-resistant fast-twitch fibers, it might potentially be that you are avoiding the recruited muscles to be and the muscle fatigue of the recruited muscles to be the rate limiter which they might otherwise be even though you are pedaling at the energetically optimal cadence basically what i'm saying is that if you are pedaling at your energetically optimal cadence perhaps the rate limiting factor isn't the energy and perhaps it isn't the, the rate limiting factor at any other cadences whether it's your freely chosen cadence or your eoc but the limit rate limiter might be actual muscle fatigue and and well-trained cyclists at least might minimize that at their freely chosen cadence so it's an interesting hypothesis i don't think there's much proven like it's not conclusive yet but it's very interesting to to consider as a potential hypothesis now to answer your question if it makes sense to target more high cadence work so that the heart rate for both types of cadences high and low would become roughly the same um, i would say that based on the physiological background that i just uh, went over this will not be possible you will almost guaranteed always have a notable difference in your oxygen uptake and therefore in your heart rate between cadences of 100 plus rpm and cadences closer to your eoc that being said i'm definitely a proponent of training both high and low cadences so i think that what you are doing with including both of them is great as it is and it is in line with what research would recommend as well there is i have to say a quite a bit of scarcity in the available research on actual training adaptations from training at different cadences uh, a systematic review by Hansen and uh, Rennestad from 2017 goes into that in detail, and I'll link to this review in the episode description. But they conclude it is first and foremost worth noting that training at a large range of cadences, from very low to very high, probably will be beneficial for performance in competitive cycling. So in other words, keep training at that range of cadences that you are using from low to high, and know that the increase in heart rate at high cadences is a very normal physiological phenomenon. And to hear a more detailed review on the actual training effects of training at different cadences, I highly recommend listening to Q&A number 31, which I called Cycling Cadence in Training and Racing, the Scientific and Anecdotal Evidence. And in that episode, I go much deeper into, for example, that review I just mentioned by Hansen and Rennestad. And you can find it on scientifictriathlon.com. Just click through to the podcast page and the Q&A episodes. Also, I will link in the episode description to this episode to some of the other studies that I looked at for answering this particular question. So for those of you who want to dig deep into the science behind all of this, those links and references will be available. So that's it. Thank you, David, so much for your question. The next question is from Anthony, who writes, Hi, Michael. Love the show. Really interesting. I've been looking at the ticker X from Wahoo for running dynamics. 
can you give can you give a rundown on how to use the kind of uh, running dynamic metrics you get from that or from other consumer running dynamics measurement tools really appreciate the effort you put into the show and all the great guests you get definitely the number one triathlon podcast cheers anthony Thank you so much, Anthony. That's uh, really good to hear that you consider this the number one triathlon podcast. That's definitely what I'm trying to achieve. So so happy to hear that feedback. Uh, for those who are not aware, running dynamics or running dynamic metrics that Anthony is mentioning here, that refers to metrics like cadence, ground contact time, ground contact time balance, stride length, vertical oscillation, vertical ratio, leg spring stiffness and form power, and uh, similar metrics that you get from uh, devices like the Wahoo Ticker X, you get it from uh, Garmin devices, you get it from the Stride FootPod and other devices as well. And my quite simple answer to this question is that of all of these running dynamic metrics, I only really use Cadence. Cadence is, in my opinion, the, the only one of these metrics that actually is actionable. So just to give a very obvious example of how it might be actionable, uh, I might coach somebody who tends to run at a very low cadence and uh, that could be something that I can look into and although there is no magic number that I can point to, if I see that cadence seems on the low side based on the body type of that athlete, then I can ask them to uh, take a film and uh, then I can have a look and see if they seem to be overstriding and if they would be able to perhaps run more efficiently with a slightly higher cadence. So as I said, there is no magic number. It really comes down to cadence in relation to stride length. In the example that I just mentioned, if I see that the athlete seems to have quite a quite a, a high stride length or a long stride length, then but they do have that uh, that low cadence, then there would be another indication that maybe they are overstriding, and and we need to look at some some video of that too to see if that is indeed the case. Do keep in mind that, as I said, body type will have a huge impact on what a typical cadence or the optimal cadence range and stride length range will be. So taller athletes will skew towards longer strides and lower cadences for a given speed uh, compared to shorter athletes. And But even for the exact same body type, there's no one single number or ratio to, to shoot for. But in some cases, it will just simply be very clear from the data that uh, an athlete could benefit from increasing their cadence. And if that is the case, then I can use the cadence data from the the devices to basically prescribe workouts and prescribe training such that they target a cadence slightly outside of their self-selected cadence range, so slightly faster, or even short repetitions of very high cadence, just to gradually work on making the comfortable cadence range larger, and eventually they will get closer to what uh, I might think is a better, more efficient cadence for them, with less of a risk of overstriding and therefore injury. On the other end of the spectrum, I do want to mention that example as well. It is quite rare, but uh, if I see that an athlete really seems to be at the upper limit of cadence, that could also be a sign to dig a little bit deeper and try to understand their running and why they are running at such a high cadence, uh, given the speed that they are running at. It might be that uh, the athlete has poor mobility, which causes them to compensate a very short and restricted stride length with high cadence. Uh, or it could just be that uh, the very high cadence compared to their stride length is the most efficient for them at this point in time 
But if that is the case, that probably is an indication of room for improvement by perhaps working on running technique or even working on strength training or plyometrics or both to get their stride length to catch up to, to cadence a bit. Uh, hill sprints and hill running are also run-specific ways in which we could uh, in, include or increase the, the force and strength component of running, which uh, might in the long term uh, make them uh, get that uh, naturally longer stride stride length to to match up to their cadence as for all the other running dynamic metrics that was a rundown on how i use cadence or might use cadence the other ones i already mentioned i don't really use them much i might glance at them but they are of quite minimal interest to me to be honest the reason being that i really don't think they are actionable in any way they might or might not tell you something about an athlete's running style that is true but unless we're talking about some extreme ends of the spectrum that doesn't really tell you at all whether the running style or form is effective or not because all evidence that there is from research suggests that there are many different types of running form or style that can be equally effective and although some studies might find sometimes that this this or that parameter is indicative of effective running generally speaking there isn't a whole lot of consensus on what parameters might be uh, really signs of effective running other than some really basic stuff such as overstriding is generally found to be an ineffective running style. I'm not saying though that these uh, other running dynamic metrics don't tell you anything about how good a runner is. It's definitely, there is a correlation. A very fast runner will generally have a ground contact time uh, much much lower than a slower runner so the fast runner will generally have a, a ground contact time closer to 200 milliseconds and a slow runner will be closer to 300 milliseconds but the thing the, the reason that i don't really consider this important is that uh, i just don't go and tell the slow runner to decrease your ground contact time i i might as well go and tell them to run faster and that is actually probably a better sort of coaching uh, coaching advice to give them rather than decrease your ground contact time because ground contact time might not be the biggest rate limiter for them running faster but even telling them to run faster uh, obviously as as you can understand only works up until a certain point so for the most part it's the job of the training plan and the coaching to get them to run faster and their ground contact time will automatically have improved once they reach a certain level of running and being a faster runner. So in other words, from the perspective of coaching or self-coaching for that matter, ground contact time in this example is a consequence, not the cause of getting faster. And the same could be said for, for all the other running dynamic metrics. Now, there is a potential argument that uh, you could use for using running dynamic metrics, and you could say that, well, the right way of using these metrics is to look at trends over time to determine your progress. And it is true that is a better way of using them. But in my opinion, it doesn't change the fact that there are so many different running styles that can work that I don't think we can pinpoint any metric as the one that is the reason you got faster or you didn't. So simply what we should track over time is speed. Did you get faster or did you not? And if you did get faster, probably one or several of those metrics, running dynamic metrics, may have changed as well. But since we do not know what this runner's ideal running form looks like, 
I think it's very important we let the body of that athlete find this ideal form through the process of training rather than try to force a change in a single or a few metrics that we, for whatever reason, think might be the key to running faster. Because I think we run, we run a big risk if we do that of over-prescribing, over-coaching and let our biases take on way too big a role if we do that. So to summarize, the running dynamic metrics can tell you something about the runner, but probably not much that you didn't already know from just looking at the speed they're running across a variety of workouts and races. Uh, the, the exception there being cadence, which I do think is useful. Uh, the other metrics, uh, they do not, in my opinion, provide actionable advice that can or should be used in training prescriptions. So I hope that answers your question, Anthony. Thank you for sending it in. And that's it for today. Keep sending in questions to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K. If you have a couple of minutes, please consider leaving a rating and review for the podcast. Uh, those have been uh, not coming in at the same rate as previously in, in the last couple of months. So I hope that we can get uh, that going again because that really helps in the show, the podcast to show up in podcast searches on Apple Podcasts and other podcast apps. So uh, that's a big help to, to getting more listeners to, uh, to tune in. And big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free hydration plan for your next race and get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the code thatdraftlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.